Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Primate Cast. I'm your host, Andrew McIntosh, and with me in the studio is summer intern Sophie Bernstein. Hey, everyone. Today is July the 31st, 2014, and this is the third of five installments of our coverage from the 74th Annual Conference of the Japan Society for Animal Psychology, which occurred between July 19th and 21st of this year. In this installment, we're going to focus on communication. That's right. So during the conference, there was a public symposium, which was uh, comprised of four speakers, two of which we'll introduce in a moment, but another being Dr. Rob Hampton, who you heard in the first installment of this series, and the fourth being Dr. Vincent Janik, who we also mentioned in the first installment, but unfortunately couldn't get an interview with. At this public symposium, we heard from Dr. John Everson and Dr. Klaus Superbuehler. We'll get to them in a minute, but first, we're joined by Dr. Fumihiro Kano, who's assistant professor at Kyoto University, stationed at the Kumamoto Sanctuary, which is currently housing a number of chimpanzees and bonobos uh, with which he's conducting his research. So Kano-san is a former graduate student of the Primate Research Institute, where he started this kind of interesting and novel work in eye tracking of great apes. And he was able to expand that work uh, into different species of great apes, including humans, when he moved and did a postdoc in Germany at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Leipzig. So here we're going to hear from Kano about his eye tracking work. This eye tracking method in Great Apes Reality Novel, its eye tracking method is very common with macaques and the human infant, but relatively novel in Great Apes. That's what I've been doing. And in recent these two years that I focus on social attention using these eye tracking techniques. It seems really impressive to me that we can do these kinds of experiments with Great Apes. So I wanted to ask Kano to elaborate on that and how they go about doing these eye tracking experiments. So basically, that I use a uh, Toby eye tracker. It's a non-invasive infrared eye tracker, which I can remote eye movement uh, remotely without touching any ape's eyes or anything. And then uh, I install uh, eye tracker and a monitor outside of the experimental booth, and then inside the experimental booth, apes come in and then sit down and then sip grape juice. Like there's a tube and nozzle attached to the acrylic panel, and then a grape wave sip that grape juice little by little while recording. So, uh, yeah, this is how I do uh, eye tracking without uh, no, without interrupt, disturbing them, and then relatively reliably. So after telling us about how this work is generally done, he went on to tell us more about the different aspects of his research paradigm. So social attention uh, is that I focus on three aspects. So one is uh, eye contact and looking one another's eye, and also gaze following and following another's gaze, and then uh, looking at the same object as others. And also the recent emerging topic, the predictive looks, and that is uh, looking at the object when other person is reaching towards that object, but before grasping. So all of those uh, uh, component of attention that is important for everyday social interaction and action coordination. Yeah, so when you think of these eye tracking experiments, it might not be immediately apparent why or how that's directly related to communication, but actually, um, so he, Kano-san is focusing on social attention and gaze following, for example, uh, has long been thought of as a, an important component of communication, especially in humans, but, but certainly in other um, primates as well. Here he's going to tell us how you test gaze following across different species. For gaze following, uh, I, it's a similar design. So it's cross design. So I presented uh, videos of bonobos and chimpanzees to bonobo and chimpanzee subject. 
So, um, so in the video, uh, Ape model is repeatedly look at one of the two identical subjects. So more looks at the looked object versus non-looked object is defined here as a case following. So in this design that I found that uh, uh, two type of species difference. One is that overall bonobo follow the gaze more frequently than chimpanzees. The other type of species difference is that uh, uh, bonobo followed uh, bonobo gaze, bonobo followed human gaze, bonobo followed chimpanzee gaze, but chimpanzee followed conspecific chimpanzee gaze, but chimpanzee did not follow human gaze, chimpanzee did not follow bonobo gaze. This is consistent with the previous study. So there's two, two type of species difference, gaze sensitivity and conspecific preference, mm -hmm. which is revealed only by this, I think, eye tracking methodology. Kano found different results from the chimpanzee and bonobo experiments, so we wanted to ask him to elaborate on why we would see these species differences in gaze following. So uh, there's, uh, uh, I think, disadvantage and advantage both uh, for this strategy uh, because um, reflexive gaze following is good for like a blind coordination. It's like uh, when you want to follow others, just just want to follow others, then this kind of a unselective reflexive gaze following is useful. But for chimpanzees, I guess selective gaze following is important for to learn selectively, selectively from others. Mm -hmm. That's a one interpretation. Mm -hmm. But this is, uh, I think, repeatedly found and um, yeah, interesting aspect. We need to look at more. So the results of these experiments and the, our ability to kind of better understand the motivations or um, based on these eye tracking data, it's a really interesting um, topic of study. And so following the gaze following work, Kano here goes on to talk about some of the newly emerging uh, fields of study, starting off with uh, predictive looks. The recently emerging topic, um, predictive looks, and then for this, um, there's uh, two important questions. Uh, if uh, I know that we know that uh, chimpanzee do uh, predictably look at others reaching, but we don't know about the other species like bonobos and orangutans. And then the second thing is that if do, if they do so in a cognitively advanced way, so the I say it's goal-based action prediction. That means uh, not only looking at the direction of reaching, but um, also predict the pattern of reaching based on the previous actions. So in this um, study that uh, I presented a video that uh, hand, human hand, is reaching toward one of the two different objects repeatedly, that's the familiarization period, and then object location is like swapped. And then human hand it moves to the middle between two different items. So if they, if uh, apes look at goals, goal-based way, then they should look at the object rather than the previous location. So that's what I found that they do goal-based way. So this is a new finding from there. And okay. then for species difference, that uh, I didn't find the pattern of predictive look, but uh, I found the species difference in the strings of object versus hand. So that uh, means that uh, they may different in the basic preference, uh, uh, looking at here rather than there, but uh, they may have same uh, cognitive potential that they can, in the same way they can predict other behavior. I mean, they, bonobos, 
orangutans and、uh, human infant、mm-hmm. and chimpanzees. And so, as we mentioned in a previous、uh, installment of this podcast series,、um, we and the researchers themselves are always interested in the ecological relevance of many of the results that they're finding. Kano goes on to hypothesize about some of the implications of his work and how to interpret previous experiments. One, one thing is that uh, uh, chimpanzee is,、uh, yeah, so far, that,、uh, from the studies I explained that so far, I found that the chimpanzee more to attend the object that is handled by other individuals. And then they selectively、uh, engage with others. So these patterns, I would say, that can explain their. Uh, a superiority in extra foraging. Like they are really good social runners and then they,、uh, they are good tool users, and,、uh, but、uh, bonobos are not so much. They can use tools, but、uh, bonobos are not so much. So,、uh, yeah, in accord with that, and then bonobo not really looking at target object, and the bonobo oh, oh, follows、uh, whoever's gaze. And then for bonobos,、um, probably I think for them it is more important to affiliate with others. So, like coordinate with others and then、uh, making good with others. Then I think this accord with that their eye attention and then, and then unselective coordination with others. That's、uh, one explanation. But、uh, of course, that we need to.、Um, We need more data and more、uh, theories to advance this idea. So, we'd like to thank Dr. Fumihiro Kano for joining us here on the podcast. Next, we have Dr. John Everson from the University of California of San Diego's Institute for Neural Computation. Yeah, he's it's really interesting, actually. So, he's kind of had kind of a diverse career so far, studying physics at Harvard and philosophy of science and speech at Cambridge and PhD in speech and hearing at MIT. And,、uh, Currently, is involved heavily or even directing the Symphony Project, which is a really cool project looking at、uh, the influence of music training on the cognitive development in kids. But in this interview, we're going to focus on a particular bird our listeners may be familiar with in terms of synchronization. I was asked to come speak about a dancing bird.、Um, and the reason that's interesting, is in addition to being a lot of fun,、um, Is that it was the first non human example of an animal that could synchronize to, to music. Okay, so we all know that music often has a beat, a sense of beat, or kind of a pulse that we feel. And for humans, this makes us want to move along with the music. And this is something you know, all cultures have, some kind of dance. And even, even babies, when you play music, they just start bouncing along. So it's kind of a mystery, you know, why, why we have this? Why do we connect sound to movement in the way that we do? Um, so,、uh, kind of focus in on that and, and a topic called synchronization, which is basically like in this context, aligning the timing of your body movements with timing of sound. Okay, so if you're listening to music with a beat,、um, you're able to perceive that beat and then move your body in time with that.、Um, so,、um, you know, on the one hand, this, this is pretty trivial for humans to do, right? And it doesn't seem like that big a deal. You hear a sound, you move along with the sound. Um, turns out I'm a neuroscientist, and there's been a lot of neuroscience behind this. And actually, it turns out to be a little more complicated than we thought.、Um, and、uh, it's interesting to study、um, for a number of reasons. As a neuroscientist, it's a great window into the brain because it's a, a nice example of how the brain is able to take sensations and convert them into actions and timing.、Um, and rhythm in general is very interesting because it's sort of.、Um, 
It's a property of the world about time and patterns of time that's really essential to our whole, you know, perception. We really live in this world of time. Um, but it's kind of one level up from the standard things that we study in psychophysics, like pitch or loudness for sound or color or texture for vision. Um, rhythm and timing is one step above that. So it actually cross across different modalities and then connects sensation and action. So just that's why I really like the area. Um, so, you know, humans, every culture has some kind of dance or music, um, which often involves groups of people, you know, moving together in time. So not just a single person tapping their foot, but a whole group that's either dancing together or kind of somehow enjoying um, some sound and movement together. And um, so it's just a really interesting thing, you know, why do humans do that? Um, it's kind of mysterious. It's a kind of a weird thing to connect movement with sound. We wanted to know if synchronization was unique to humans and if he had found this in other non-human animals. And on the other hand, you know, do other animals do this? Um, it doesn't seem like the, the pieces of this ability are that complicated. You know, you have to be able to perceive sound and you have to be able to move rhythmically. And every animal can do both of those things for the most part. I mean, locomotion is a rhythmic movement. Um, but it turns out uh, it's very rare uh, to find animals that can actually make that connection. So, yes, every animal can hear, every animal can move rhythmically, but actually finding animals that link those two things together is extremely rare. Um, until a couple of years ago, we actually thought it was unique to humans. So that kind of gave us a little extra cachet to study this thing that's, you know, human um, music, language, it's, you know, those, those great things that humans do. Um, and so, um, but you know, as, as is fun in science, I think is, is in a way being proven wrong is one of the most enjoyable things in science. I mean, I know it sounds strange to say, but you know, here we were going saying that humans are the only animal to synchronize. And, um, so in, uh, 2007, I think it was, um, got an email from a friend who said, it's just a link to a YouTube video and just said, you have to check this out. Um, and, you know, this friend knew kind of that our position was that humans are the only animal to synchronize. So I clicked on the link and it was this bird um, named Snowball, Snowball the Cockatoo, dancing along. And I think many, many of you have seen this video. If you haven't, just go to YouTube, type Snowball Dancing, and it'll be right there. Um, you know, pressed play and it's this, you know, kind of bird, pretty funky bird, bouncing up and down to music, right? Um, it's a song by the Backstreet Boys. And he's not just, you know, sort of moving like robotically. He actually seems to have a bit of, bit of style and panache and he's doing different moves and looks like he's having a great time. So seeing this was kind of, you know, you know mind blowing. Like, wow, I've never seen anything like that before. Because there are, you know, there are lots of YouTube videos of dogs dancing and cats dancing and, you know, kind of kept an eye on those. But none of them are at all convincing, right? There's no, yeah, there's no convincing video of a dog you know, actually moving in time to the beat. And that's the crucial thing. There are plenty of videos of dogs bouncing up and down when music's playing, but they're, if you look at the timing, it's not synchronized. So this bird really looked like it was in sync. Um, so I've got a, a collaborator, Ani Patel, and interestingly, around the same time, maybe the same day, he got an email from a friend. So clearly this, you know, this meme was going around. And um, so we both like kind of kind of blew us away and we both immediately figured out who the owner was and wrote to her um, separately saying, 
this is amazing, you know, I study synchronization in humans and never seen an animal do this. What's going on? How did it do this? Where did it learn this? You know, does it dance to different kinds of music? Um, and then we got these funny answers back saying, you know, that's well, really weird, but someone else just wrote me an email with the exact same questions. You know, do you know this guy, um, Ani Patel by any chance? So um, that's how the whole story started. Yeah, so it seems pretty rare that a science project will actually land in your inbox um, the way it did for, for Dr. Everson. Um, but he goes on here to tell us about what kind of synchronization we were observing in Snowball. So there were a lot of questions. Um, in the YouTube video, turned out Snowball was actually dancing along with his owner, um, which is, you know, one kind of synchronization, but we were really focused on auditory synchronization like humans do. So we thought, okay, what's the best way to test this? Um, and, you know, pretty simple idea, actually. One thing you want to see is, A, that the bird can move without a human kind of prompting it, um, and B, you want to see that the bird can move at different tempos of music. Then we asked Dr. Everson to elaborate on how he tests synchronization in Snowball. Yeah, so how to test whether this is for real. Um, I think any skeptical person looking at the video would say, okay, well, is it sort of a clever Hans type of thing where, you know, off the screen someone was waving up and down and the bird was just copying the movement? Maybe it had nothing to do with the sound. Um, so um, it's you know, pretty easy to take a song and slow it down, speed it up without changing the pitch. So the idea that we had was we would just take his favorite song, um, create a, a whole series of versions that are slower and faster than the original, um, and then send it on a CD to uh, Irena Schultz, who's Snowball's owner, and have her videotape Snowball just, you know, dancing along with his music, if he even danced at all. Um, and then we made it very clear we did not want her to be dancing along. Uh, we wanted her to be motionless, but um, she could encourage him verbally. So um, fortunately, she was really into this idea as just kind of another piece of serendipity. She was, uh, you know, previously been a PhD student, never finished, but kind of, you know, liked science, understood science, understood what controlled science meant and, and so on. So um, this is... Yeah, the beginning of a really fun collaboration, and so um, we got the videos back and analyzed them. Um, the way we did that was just looking frame by frame at the video and just finding the frame number where his beak kind of reached a minimum point, and we called those, you know, the beat, Snowball's beat. Um, and then we analyzed music in the same way, so we found the beats of the music and Snowball's dancing movements. And you can essentially see how well they line up, you know, whether his movements are right on the beat or not whether his tempo is right, um, whether he's going too fast, too slow. So we found a mix. I mean, he definitely danced sometimes, he danced a lot, but sometimes he was not paying attention to the music, but sometimes he was. And so when we looked at those periods when he was in sync with the music, um, defined by a statistical test called the Rayleigh test, um, you know, we found that in fact, those synchronized bouts, actually the tempo changed according to the music. So he was dancing on tempo. Um, not just dancing faster with faster music, but actually hitting the tempo correctly. So, um, yeah, that's kind of how we showed the first first animal dancing to music. Um, we had some other tests just to rule out a variety of other, you know, um, null hypotheses. Because, uh, as, as I always say, you know, if you're you know, like a serious scientist and here you are trying to claim that there's a bird that can dance, you know, you better make sure you, you're absolutely sure, right? Because... 
the only thing worse than being the guy who studies dancing birds is the guy who thought birds could dance, but they, they really can't, ha, 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 you know? Okay, so, so obviously really interesting stuff, but here, uh, until now, Dr. Everson's been talking really about just one study based on one bird um, and originating just from the one video. But so we wanted him to elaborate on what or how common this might be um, in non-human animals. So yeah, naturally people will say, well, there's just this one bird. Um, yeah, so two things there. There was another group at Harvard who was um, at the time studying um, another parrot dancing. Um, but they also did a survey of YouTube videos, um, any video with animal and dancing. And um, as you mentioned, they, they found only about 33 out of several thousand videos that showed real, you know, example of synchronization. And of all those species they found, um, like 14 out of 15 were some kind of parrot. So that's pretty remarkable too, right? Um, and this all goes back to a hypothesis that Ani Patel had called the vocal learning hypothesis. And so this kind of combination of finding one, you know, vocal learning bird that can dance and then this confirmation of the YouTube videos really seemed to support that hypothesis. And the idea was very simple that, um, you know, vocal learning, in this case being like a vocal mimic, being able to learn throughout the lifetime to you know, recreate sounds. It just seems, you know, obvious that that must involve some pretty close connections between the auditory system and the motor system, some kind of feedback loop so that you can compare what you're hearing with what you're producing and, and adjust. So it seemed like the, the kind of the closest behavior to synchronization that would involve auditory motor linking like that. So um, that became the vocal learning hypothesis that made the claim that, you know, only these open-ended vocal learning species condense. Or could potentially dance, right? So Snowball and, and the other parrots seem to confirm that. So Dr. Everson just supported the vocal learning hypothesis, but goes on to elaborate on other experiments that are trying to disprove that this is the only explanation. So, you know, since then, there have been a number of people trying other species. Um, and, you know, in some sometimes like trying to openly disprove the vocal learning hypothesis, in other cases kind of being a little bit consistent with it. Um, so there's been work um, in macaques and in chimpanzees and sea lion, um, and none of those are really thought of as, as real vocal learners. Um, that's the other really interesting thing is that, you know, all of our primate relatives, they're not vocal learners. They don't have the same facility, this ability to imitate sounds. Because um, I think naturally people will think, well, primates ought to be able to do this. And people are often quite surprised that, you know, so far, it seems like primates only have a very limited ability to synchronize, um, at least at least spontaneously. I don't think anyone's really tried um, with chimpanzees to train them, train them yet. Um, but they did try very hard to train macaques, and it was very difficult to get them to synchronize. Um, the sea lion is an interesting example um, because it's it's you know related to uh, other vocal learning learning species, um, particularly walrus and seals. Um, but you know, it's, it, its own vocal learning is pretty rudimentary. So it's kind of an interesting, little bit of a gray area. Um, it may have common ancestry with other, you know, other pinnipeds that are vocal learners. Um, but that's, that story I think is still yet to be completely finished. I think we really need someone to go out there, anyone who's listening, go study walruses and seals and see if they can learn to synchronize with music. <laughs> um, so, uh, and, and I guess that's one other distinction is that the, the, the sea lion and the snowball study, they were actually using human music 
Um, so there's a, the, kind of an added step of actually being able to hear a complex sound and extract a simple beat from it as well. Um, so uh, in contrast to like just synchronizing with a metronome, it's just going beep, beep, beep. And so to conclude the interview, Dr. Everson kind of wraps up uh, with a discussion of these various hypotheses and touches upon the possible origins of synchronization in humans. So, you know, where all this stands, maybe vocal learning hypothesis, but that's not the only possibility. Um, another, you know, really interesting aspect of synchronization is very, very social. Um, so if you think about, well, why did this ability evolve in humans? So vocal learning would say, actually it didn't. Um, vocal learning evolved and synchronizing with music just kind of came along for the ride. Just kind of, you know, use those same circuits that exist for vocal learning. Um, but, you know, there are other more direct hypotheses, like a, like a social bonding type hypothesis, just based on the observation that people who dance together or play drums together feel good about each other. Um, so, you know, maybe it's a, a kind of a, a social bonding adaptation, potentially. So we'd like to thank Dr. John Everson for joining us in the studio and sharing with us that fascinating story about Snowball and the origins of beat synchronization. So far, we've heard about eye gaze and eye tracking experiments, one visual form of communication, We've heard about the origins of synchronization in a dancing bird, and now we're going to talk about a form of communication that travels across auditory channels. We're going to talk about vocalizations. Yeah, so it's interesting that humans and parrots show this amazing capacity for beat synchronization. And as we heard in the interview with Dr. Everson, uh, this can be explained using the vocal learning hypothesis, where obviously the ability to mimic sounds and create sounds of high complexity and diversity are really important. Now, however, in non-human primates, which are obviously much more closely related to humans than are these birds, this capacity does not exist. But that does not mean that they don't share many of the components that are required uh, for the evolution of language in humans. Now we're going to listen to Dr. Klaus Zuberbuehler from the University of Neuchâtel. He's a leading expert in the field of non-human primate communication. So let's listen to Dr. Klaus Zuberbuehler tell us about the different kinds of field experiments that he does, where he's gone, and how he's trying to uncover the origins of human language. One of the you know big problems in science is really why you know humans as the only primate species have evolved this really complex communication system that is language and uh, the way we can look at this scientifically is to break language down into the key components and then try and study them separately and the ultimate goal is really to try and understand how the transition from sort of a primate-like communication system to human language, how that took place. And so we're particularly interested in three components. One is how primates encode information by using vocal signals and gestures. And then second, how uh, this information becomes meaningful for others. And then <coughs> thirdly, um, how primates uh, use social intelligence to uh, change, to influence their audience in, in, their, in, in their own interest. Knowing the main components now that Dr. Zubuler is looking at, we asked him how he goes about testing this. Where do these kinds of experiments have to happen? So what, what we try and do is um, uh, observe them in the wild, in their natural habitat, where they've evolved, because uh, if we want to learn about evolution, then we really need to see uh, how, how things happen naturally. And so it's a lot of field work, so we usually try and habituate a group of monkeys to our presence, 
and then do a lot of ethological work and just see how they deploy uh, communication signals uh, with each other in response to what stimuli. And once we understand the basic uh, patterns and structure, we try and do playback experiments or other types of field experiments to understand uh, the causal relations between uh, stimulus and response. Now Dr. Zuberbuehler is going to tell us how he investigates the three components, coding and the flexibility of primate signal production, inference, what receivers can get from different vocal signals, and the social aspect of communication in terms of the effect of an audience and some possible motivating factors during acts of communication. So with regards to uh, encoding, uh, a particularly interesting signal is the food calls that chimpanzees give when they, when they find food. Uh, it's it's a, what we call a, a, a grunt, it's a rough grunt, and the acoustic structure of the signal varies depending on the quality of the food. And uh, we've, we've done a playback study showing that recipients uh, understand uh, the, the, the basic difference between high-quality grunts and, and, and grunts given to low-quality food. Uh, so, so that's uh, almost um, uh, 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 it's kind of a paradigmatic case of how uh, chimpanzee vocalizations work. So they have basic call types, but within these call types there's often a lot of variation, which, uh, which can be meaningful to others. Um, now in terms of inference, uh, um, you know, it's another important ability that you need in language. You have to be able to make sense of what your your signal or is trying to tell you. And uh, so, so there is uh, quite a bit of evidence in many primates that uh, vocalizations in particular uh, can be meaningful. Uh, so for example, uh, in a recent playback study, we have waited for two animals to uh, have a fight with each other and then followed the victim after the fight uh, for about two hours. And then after that period, we played back the aggressive barks of uh, an ally of the former opponent or some other animal. And we could show that the, the victim was extremely worried when he heard the aggressive barks of someone who was closely affiliated with the former aggressor, but uh, ignored uh, the same types of calls if it was given by another animal who was not uh, in any way linked with the aggressor. So that shows us that vocalizations are understood in terms of not only uh, the general context but also the, the, the social implications that uh, they have for, for the individual. And so they take the whole social fabric and the interaction history into account when they, when they hear a vocalization and, and uh, respond to that accordingly. And then uh, the, the third main uh, component, if you want, is the social cognitional social awareness and here um, maybe uh, you know where humans are uh, especially different from the primates because when we communicate with each other we constantly take the other's mental perspective into account you know we try and uh, make sure that we say stuff that is relevant for our audience and uh, we do that by uh, you know, establishing common ground. We want to make sure that, that uh, we, we, we say things that the other, other finds interesting. And <coughs> in, uh, in primary communication, often one gets the impression that they just vocalize or gesture because that's the way they're built, because 
uh, certain signals are adaptive, you know, because they may save genetic relatives or something like that. Um, so we've done a few studies with largely with chimpanzees, and uh, uh, by and large that model holds. But there are cases where uh, individuals uh, do take their audience into account. We've seen this in the context of alarm calling in chimpanzees to snakes. So they uh, they 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 produce alarm calls to benefit others, to warn them specifically, not not just in response to the snake, but to the danger that uh, their, the, the audience uh, experiences. So if someone, if the audience is unaware of, of the presence of a snake, then they're more likely to give alarm calls than if the audience is already aware of the snake. And uh, a similar effects in food calls. So if someone arrives who doesn't know yet about food and, uh, and the caller sees that, then he's likely to call again and, and advertise the, uh, uh, this, this resource to them. And yet humans are still unique, and that's something that I often wonder about too. What is it about humans that makes how we communicate so different from other primates? And we asked Dr. Zubiller to kind of elaborate on that. And so he tells us where we see some strong parallels between us and other non-human primates, and some of the implications of his research. I think it shows quite clearly that um, even though human language is a unique uh, behavior and, and you know very different from uh, what the other primates do. I think this work still clearly shows where the continuities uh, lie, and that the, the you know the language faculty as a whole is really a conglomerate of uh, different uh, capacities that are present uh, to various degrees in, in non-human primates, and uh, so for example the ability to uh, infer in a meaning from vocalization seems to be extremely widespread. We see that in uh, all primates we've studied so far that they can extract meaning from vocalizations. Um, possibly this is uh, even true for non-primate uh, species, most, most certainly it is. Um, but then when it comes to uh, social cognition, we have very little evidence in, in, in monkeys that, that that's an important factor. Uh, but in, in the great apes, uh, it, it's quite clear that they are socially aware of, of the presence of others and the influence that their signals have upon them. Uh, so, so there we see uh, strong parallels to humans, uh, but, but still, you know, humans go much beyond that. They, they take communication to another level, which we, we don't see uh, in, in these primates. And uh, one reasonable hypothesis is that it has to do with our uh, highly cooperative nature. You know, we are probably the most cooperative primate, the most social primate of, of all of them. And, uh, uh, we, you know, we, we feel strongly uh, about group memberships and, and want to make sure that we're uh, respected and, and uh, integrated uh, in these groups. And uh, the best way to do that is to uh, help each other to to uh, uh, you know do stuff that is beneficial to others because then you can uh, be, uh, you know start these reciprocal relationships and uh, most likely language has evolved in this context to facilitate these cooperative relationships and uh, the which is an evolutionary pressure that's probably not present in in other species so I think uh, th this is the, the the way to uh, to future research. 
It was incredible getting the chance to talk with Dr. Zuber Bueller about all the different kinds of research that he's doing and some of the hypotheses that he has about the origins of human language. Yeah, it really was great to talk to him. So Dr. Zuber Bueller, in addition to studying communication, is also a very good communicator himself. Uh, so it was great hearing you know, the accounts of the original studies on vervet monkey alarm calls by Seyfarth, Cheney, and Marler, and you know, then him walking us through his own work, which is very impressive and diverse on the field of non-human primate communication. Now, I first heard Dr. Zuber-Bueller talk about his work, uh, some related work on another podcast, a Canadian podcast on the CBC called Quarks and Quarks. So it was really great to have a chance to talk with him directly on the Primate Cast. Stay tuned for the next installment in this series of podcasts from the JSAP, where we turn our focus towards uh, a researcher from Poland talking about lateralization of the brain. We hope you join us for that and other episodes of the Primate Cast. You have been listening to The Primate Cast, a podcast series dedicated to the study and conservation of primates around the world. Brought to you by the Centre for International Collaboration and Advanced Studies in Primatology of the Primate Research Institute of Kyoto University. Visit us online at www.cicasp.pri.kyoto-u.ac.jp forward slash news forward slash podcasts and follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash the primatecast and on Twitter at the primatecast.